You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. They had cast out X number of devils, but there were still devils in there that they decided that it physically, it had enough, and they decided to leave it for another time. And it was during that interim period that uh, he, 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 well, he did what he did, which is, is, is now his history. Everybody drinking blood, everybody eating brains, some monster party. Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones, some monster party. Thank you very much for listening to episode six of Where is the Line? My name is Kevin, and with me today is my friend Jamie. Say something disturbing, Jamie. Peacoat. Peacoat. That is not at all disturbing. <laughs> so when you hear the word peacoat, honk your horn. <laughs> Are you ready to get into part two of the worst exorcism ever? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. For anyone who might not have caught the last episode, what you're about to hear is the second and final part of a two-part story. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, you may want to stop here and go back and listen to that episode. Or you can just start from here if you'd like. I'm about to give a brief recap of part one right now. In part one of The Worst Exorcism Ever, we talked about the December 1973 release of the movie The Exorcist and the impact that this movie had on its viewers. People were fainting and vomiting in theaters upon viewing it, and the effects of the film seemed to linger with people quite a while after seeing it. This may have had something to do with the fact that William Peter Blatty based at least part of this novel on the account of a 14-year-old boy who was actually exercised in the late 1940s and who was alleged to have been demon-possessed. This dipping of the toe into reality led a lot of people to believe that The Exorcist, both the novel and the film, were actually based on a true story. After The Exorcist was released, there was a resurgence of interest in demonic possession, and pretty quickly, all over the world, people began believing themselves to be possessed by devils. And on the flip side of that, many other people started believing themselves to have the powers and abilities to remove these devils from their supposed victims. About nine months after the release of The Exorcist, a married Englishman named Michael Taylor began speaking in tongues and behaving very strangely within days of joining a Christian fellowship group and meeting the highly charismatic and quite attractive 22-year-old leader of this group, <laughs> Marie Robinson. You will not give it a rest, will you? <laughs> <laughs> Michael and Marie spend a huge amount of time in each other's company. And this attention that Michael was getting from Marie seemed to be predicated on just how bizarre Michael Taylor behaved. Eventually, Michael's behavior becomes so outlandish that a team of exorcists led by Peter and Sally Vincent perform a seven-hour exorcism on Michael Taylor. Claiming to have ridded Michael of 40 demons, the Vincents and the rest of this group agree to take a break and get some rest before extracting the final three demons, which included, according to them, the demon of murder. Before these exorcists would get a crack at these final three demons, though, Michael Taylor is found by police wandering naked in the street 
and repeating the phrase, it is the blood of Satan. And that all brings us up to where we left off in part one. One of the policemen recognizes Michael, and they radio in to have other officers sent to the Taylor residence. The first officer that walks inside the Taylor home comes back out very quickly and starts dry heaving. When the police enter the house, they can see blood trailing to the front door from the kitchen. What they end up finding in the kitchen would eventually be described as a scene of appalling depravity. In this house, the walls are completely covered with blood, and not only blood, tissue. They find Christine Taylor laying dead in the floor. Her eyeballs have been ripped out of their sockets. Her face has been peeled almost entirely off, and she no longer has a tongue. Beside Christine Taylor is the family dog, this little poodle. Its limbs have been pulled from the sockets, so it's been dismembered and it's laying next to Christine Taylor. The police start searching the home and around the home looking for a murder weapon, and they never find one. When Christine Taylor's body was examined later, they found that the wounds to her face were not consistent with knife wounds or with injuries that might have resulted from any type of sharp object. Her features had been torn from her face. And something about the nature of these injuries led them to believe that this was all done by hand without any form of weaponry at all. It appears as though Michael Taylor, with his fingers, pulled her eyes out, ripped her face off, and grabbed her tongue and ripped it out of her head. The first thing I did when I read this, because I was alone and nobody was watching me, I grabbed my own tongue and tried to pull it out of my head. I can't imagine how you can do that. But you can't, I can't get a grip on it enough. I would be interested to know if a 30-year-old human, average strength, can physically grip a tongue and pull it out. Because if not, that means that Michael Taylor used some kind of instrument, a pair of pliers, and then he ran and hid the pliers after he did it. Let's call Mythbusters and see if they can recreate this for us. So I think this is important because if someone is not physically able to pull out the tongue of another person, then that means that Michael Taylor used some kind of instrument to accomplish this, probably a pair of pliers, and then he hid the pliers. The implication of that would be that Michael was not technically insane at the time of the attack. Insanity of the violent rage-inducing sort does not, I believe, come with pauses within which someone regains their composure enough to clean and then hide items that they use to assist themselves in the murder. So I don't believe that someone can fly to a fit of insanity so severe that they mutilate their wife and their dog, take a break to get rid of a few things, and then return to that insane state and wander about the neighborhood naked, mumbling about the devil. I bring that up because in a little bit we're going to talk about the almost universally accepted notion of what happened that led up to this, and also a couple of kind of batshit ideas about the motivations behind this incident. The the messiness of that, like where does the tongue even, like you would have to pull out whole parts of her throat. The tongue begins partially down the throat. Am I wrong about this? No. Yeah, so like it's kind of connected, so you'd have to pull out a whole lot of weird shit along with that. That's actually pretty interesting, like the whole mm -hmm. logistics of the tongue pulling out. Jesus. 
The police find that the dog had had its neck wrung and uh, presumably and hopefully this happened before Michael Taylor begins ripping this dog's legs out of its sockets. Christine, though, had not been dead when this trauma occurred to her face. The cause of her death was officially listed as asphyxiation. So at some point while Michael Taylor is tearing these features off of her face, the resulting blood flowed into her trachea and she drowned on her own blood while this is happening. Back at the police station, the police have Michael Taylor in custody and he's telling them about the previous night's exorcism and how it affected him. Michael Taylor says, quote, they primed me for it talking about the Vincents and the rest of this exorcism mm -hmm. team. They tried to bring me peace of mind, but instead they filled me with the devil. Before long, the story gets out. It turns into a huge media sensation. Osset is a fairly small town, so mm -hmm. nothing even close to this has ever happened there before. The people in Osset are completely abuzz about this. Pretty much the entire UK is talking about this when this happens. And the details that, that we're talking about with this murder come out over the course of this trial and people are starting to learn about Marie Robinson, Peter Vincent, and the details of this attack and murder of Christine Taylor. In part one, we spoke with our new friend Phil, who grew up in Osset, West Yorkshire, and who revealed to us that his school teacher during this period, 1974, was none other than Sally Vincent, who was present at Michael Taylor's exorcism and who was, according to Phil, most likely the instigator of that exorcism. As I've said before, this is very interesting because every article and every story that you'll find about this case names her husband, Peter, as being the leader of this group that performed this exorcism on Michael. According to Phil, though, this was most certainly not the case at all. According to him, Sally Vincent was the one with an obsession with demon possession and who was most certainly the one who insisted that this exorcism take place. What we did not tell you in part one was that in addition to this teacher-student relationship that Phil had with Sally, he had another, much closer connection to the Vincent family. In 1974, while all of this was happening, Phil was actually dating the daughter of Peter and Sally Vincent. This young woman's name was Maria not to be confused with Marie Robinson, who we spoke about earlier and who seemed to have kicked this whole thing into motion. Being the daughter of Peter and Sally Vincent, Maria was present during a great deal of the interactions between Michael Taylor and the Vincents. Now, we spoke about the effects that the movie The Exorcist was having on its audience during this time. It terrified people, and some of that was because there was a hint or a perceived possibility that the events depicted on the screen may have been based on something that actually happened. My own mother even admitted to not being able to sleep alone after seeing it for the first time. And here in Maria Vincent, we have a teenage girl who is living in a home where she is being exposed in real life to happenings that are closely mimicking these things that are terrifying to a very extreme degree, just moviegoers. And she's living in the middle of it. As for Sally Vincent, uh, my association with her was not just the fact that she was a school teacher but she had also previously introduced me to her daughter. I was very interested in asking you about that. Yeah. What was it like to date the daughter of an Anglican priest? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, let's, let's be honest, I was very young. She was just less than a year older than me, but slightly older than me. I think she was being 15 and I was 14. It was very, very nice. 
uh, at first, and on the surface, they just seemed like the perfect family unit. The best of everything was was readily available in ways of food and, um, you know, and, and a welcome when he went to the house. But she was very well spoken, was Maria. So there was nothing rough and ready about her. But the, the letters that we used to write to each other regular, but that was during the time when Sally Vincent taught at the school I was at. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was, she was, I wasn't allowed to see her during the week because homework came first. Mm-hmm. Remember, we were both still at school. We were allowed to see each other at weekends. So during the week, we, we would probably do our individual homework and then we'd write a letter. And I would slip the letter to, to Sally Vincent uh, with my homework. Mm-hmm. And she would slip me the letter back. And as a sign of trust between us, she vowed never to read the letters or to open the letters. So she didn't know what was in the letter I was getting. And she didn't know what was in the letter that I was giving her, uh, which, of course, was, was quite, was, there was no problem with that at all. Until probably the final couple of letters that I received from Maria, which showed that by this time she had become very disturbed. I mean, all of this happened very quickly. So Michael Taylor shows up one night at the Vincent's home, and then the exorcism happens the next day, I believe, correct? Yes, I believe so. Yes, so I believe so. You're getting letters. So you get letters about that first visit and then also about the exorcism that took place? Yeah, soon after. Soon yeah. after. Apparently, one thing that sticks in my mind is that uh, there was apparently there was a large a metal, I imagine it was brass or something like that, cross at the top of the stairs in the vicarage. And Maria said it had started to melt during the night of the exorcism. It had started to melt? Melt. The metal, the, the, the metal that it was made of had started to, to warp or to, to melt or to contort. Hmm. It, was a, it was a great big solid metal crucifix. And apparently it had started to change shape. It looked like as it was melting. Now, I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous mm-hmm. and I, I i never went back to the vicarage after that so i don't know but this was what she told me in her letter mm-hmm. now i don't think a 15 year old schoolgirl, especially somebody who was intelligent as she were and um as doing as well at school as she were and was at, up to that point quite you know quite normal say something like that yeah but I think this this build up, particularly to the to the event uh, events of that night, was having a dis- very disturbing effect on on her. Mm-hmm. She started smoking for a start, which was a massive taboo even then. Uh, certainly amongst uh, girls that went to a really good school, and um, coming from the family that she came from, it was a it was a big thing. When she was caught smoking, it was it, it was considered to be a a real massive problem mm-hmm. um, and it was soon after that that we, we well we didn't actually split up as such she was sent away to a, a, a girls boarding school in Nesborough which is a, a a very nice northern classical town in, in, in Yorkshire very nice area very respectable area uh, it must have cost them quite a bit of money to send her there and that, I never saw her again after that I, I didn't I didn't know how to how to to, to relate to her after that. Uh, I didn't write to her, and she never wrote to me again since. Before we get to the trial for this case, let's take a minute to talk about a few ideas on how this horrible murder came to happen. The general consensus about these events is that Marie Robinson, with whom Michael Taylor quickly became very enamored after meeting, was having a little bit of a power trip. She enjoyed leading this group of charismatic Christians, and particularly, she enjoyed the feeling of power that being the leader of this group provided her. 
As such, she particularly enjoyed how deeply Michael bought into her supposed abilities of healing and communing with these supernatural forces. Most people do not seem to feel that she was actually having any intimate contact with Michael, but that she enjoyed the rush that she got from Michael's complete lack of skepticism towards her and her superpowers. Marie's infatuation with these spiritual powers and with placing herself in a leadership role was coincidentally exactly the kind of thing that Michael Taylor did not need to be exposed to because he was developing at a late but not unheard of stage in life symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia. Also coincidentally, there happened to be in the very near vicinity to Michael and Marie, Peter and Sally Vincent, of whom at least one of which was, just like Marie Robinson, obsessed with these biblical powers that they believed themselves to possess. So the personalities and obsessions of the Vincents and of Marie Robinson, along with the timing of Michael's descent into mental illness, all combined in this terrible but incredibly perfect way to push Michael Taylor across the line and into a complete and violent detachment from reality. All of this would have been stoked quite considerably by the huge surge of interest in these types of topics that was brought on by the release of The Exorcist just about nine months before this. This is the generally agreed upon explanation for what happened, and I will admit that it is most likely the closest to the truth of the events. How do you feel about that explanation? I don't know, man. It sounds like heavy metals making kids murder dogs and stuff. Well, I'm not saying that the exorcist caused this to happen. Yeah, I just... I'm saying you've got a lot of factors here. You've got Marie Robinson. Oh, it's, it's the same thing. What, you have heavy, heavy metal, MTV. I mean, there's always some sort of Beatlemania back in the day, right? There's always some sort of weird cultural explanation for why it's happening. I mean, sure, people probably got more interested in the Catholic Church and exorcism and demonic possession. Still a movie. I don't know. I think people give too much credence to that. I kind of feel like that maybe Michael Taylor would have gone off the deep end anyway. I don't feel like his method of doing so would have been via demon possession if there were not Uh, all of this hype going on. I because gotcha. of this movie, The Exorcist. All right, so this this gave him an outlet. If it hadn't been this, maybe it would have been something else. It probably would I have mean, been something else. There are triggers, definitely. But this guy's what? He's he's not steadily employed. He's got a shit ton of kids and a wife that he's clearly not too happy with. It, it doesn't seem that odd that it was more like a chick who was paying attention to him rather than the demonic possession aspect of it. That kind of brings us to a considerably less plausible but still worth considering explanation for this. And that's that Michael Taylor was unhappy with this life that he had. He's got these five kids. They're undoubtedly terrible because they're children and all children are terrible. (laughs) How can you like small animals so much and hate babies? I love animals. They're cute. They have fur. (laughs) You really, really dislike babies. (laughs) I just like anyone under the age of, I'm okay with depressed, lethargic, older teenagers. I don't like being around any kind of young people that are hyper in any way. (laughs) I don't know why that's so funny to me. Continue with what you were saying. So maybe Michael's unhappy with his life. His wife, to to put it politely, is rather ordinary looking. (laughs) She's no no Marie Robinson. (laughs) She's no Marie Robinson. Maybe Michael and Marie... 
were doing more than making the sign of the cross over each other during these all-nighters that they were having? And maybe, in the world's renewed interest and belief in demon possession, Michael saw a way out of his ordinary life. It's probably a giant leap, but maybe Michael is thinking, if I get rid of my wife in such a horrible way, surely they will declare me insane. Yeah, I don't think that was that was a really well thought out plan, if that was his plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this explanation is admittedly a leap, but I do think that it is at least worth thinking about that maybe Michael Taylor is not at all insane. There's just This was a, just like a well thought out plot to rid himself of his wife. Maybe. I don't believe that. I absolutely don't believe that, but it's worth thinking about. The explanation for this that I am not at all willing to give any merit to, and an explanation that is believed by more people than I'm comfortable with, is that Michael Taylor was actually demon-possessed, and that Marie Robinson and the Vincents tried to help him, but unfortunately they failed tragically. If you happen to be a spiritual or religious person, that's absolutely fine. If you believe in demon possession, that's fine. I have friends who <laughs> who go to church. Why did you use the word friends? And pronounce Are you it saying I don't way? have friends? <laughs> no, your your face just indicated that that was a leap right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking as that was coming out of my mouth, I was thinking this sounds like a racist person who says I have a black friend. Right. Hey, I just did that with I just did that with church. Yeah, you have friends. I have friends that are Christians. I have friends that have been to church. <laughs> Lots of people go to church, and they're perfectly rational folks. <laughs> Not all of them believe in demonic possession, by the way. Is your problem with that theory the fact that these people believe in demonic possession, or is the problem that people who weren't good enough at exorcism were trying to exorcise the demons? My problem with this theory is that there is absolutely positively no such thing as demon possession. It's not a thing that exists. Phil from the UK, obviously, has spent more time thinking about this than we have, and he shared with us his thoughts on how this happened. I'm having a really difficult time deciding what I think about Michael Taylor. So he's, he, he does not have a traditionally religious background. He meets Marie Robinson, who is very attractive, and then all of a sudden, he's very religious. Well, this is a this. I think the verdict at the time was uh, this is a trait of people who are mentally disturbed. People who who have mental issues very often become obsessed with religion mm -hmm. when they may have been atheists for a yeah. long time, and all of a sudden become obsessively Christian, obsessively uh, motivated by religion. Mm -hmm. um, I know. I mean, you can't read the Bible and absorb it intelligently in a short period of time. But um, I think it. I think they. Uh, I don't know how to put it. It seems to appeal to people's wildest of imaginations. Yeah. The the, the basics of uh, of Christianity uh, seem to inhibit people who are slightly mentally unstable. <laughs> Uh, rather than somebody who's just grown up with a with a Christian upbringing, uh, it's people who seem to come to it late in life. Discover they think they think they've they've been on the road to Damascus and had a a, a massive epiphany in their lives, and they've been chosen by God to do something outrageous or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be a trait of people who have have, have mental 
mental problems. And I think that was that was it with with Michael Taylor. I don't think he had any understanding of the background behind what they were trying to impose on him. In other words, the teachings of Jesus Christ. I think it it all became it built up and built up and built up, and it was all it was very powerful. And he had all, he was already mentally unstable, and I think it just tipped him over the top. It was interesting to me, though, that no kind of mental instability seemed to have manifested itself prior to this. It just seems like there would have been something before this, some some type of meltdown, or he would have gotten yeah, in some yeah, kind yeah, of trouble. Yeah, I agree. I would have thought so. Uh, that I don't think we'll, pr- we'll probably never know now. Yeah. But um, Maria Robinson uh, apparently was quite a persuasive person, um, as, as definitely Sally Vincent was. I think they were trying to make a bit of a name for themselves. As well, and I think they were prob- probably at some sort of mental disorder as well, if the truth's known. Yeah. And uh, they they just got carried away, to be honest. Regardless of the motivations or contributors to what happened, when the trial for this case concluded on March 25th, 1975, the court recorded a verdict of misadventure. Misadventure. It sounds very Scooby Doo. It does. And Michael Taylor. <laughs> is found not guilty by reason of insanity. Michael spends two years in Broadmoor Psychiatric Facility, and then he spends two more years in the Bradford Royal Infirmary in West Yorkshire, and then they let him go. Over this incident, Michael spends a total of four years in custody, and when he leaves... Is he getting treatment the entire time he's in custody? He is. Okay, excellent. When they let him go after four years, he moves back to Osset, the same town where this whole thing took place. In the years following that, Michael Taylor attempts suicide at least four times. One of these times, he tried slitting his wrists. And in another attempt, he jumped off of a bridge, but he didn't die. Instead, he managed to injure his back and his legs pretty severely from this fall. Apart from these occasional suicide attempts, Michael Taylor manages to keep a very low profile for about 30 years. You can't find much of anything about him during this period. But then in 2005, Michael Taylor gets in trouble again. He gets picked up for indecent contact with a minor. He spends a week in custody for this, in which. For the first time since mid-1970s, he starts exhibiting symptoms like those that he had during his quote-unquote possession. These symptoms remarkably go away once he gets bailed out. Your eyebrows suggest you're skeptical. I am skeptical. About I this do not possession. believe that psychosis is dependent upon you being in legal trouble. I believe that psychosis should persist whether or not you're in trouble with the law. Michael Taylor's symptoms of schizophrenia and psychosis seem to only crop up when he's in trouble. I'm sorry, by or embarrassed. schizophrenia and psychosis, you meant demonic possession, right? Yes, yes. Michael Taylor's demonic possession tends to only creep up when he gets in trouble for something. Like hooking up with that super hot girl. (laughs) Now she's super hot. I mean, I really like that peacoat she's wearing. That's not a peacoat. It's just a wool coat. No, it's a peacoat. No, peacoats are very specific. No, I know. That's not a peacoat. That is. That's not a peacoat. That is not a peacoat. We are going to have a fight about Marie Robinson's peacoat? It's totally a peacoat. I'll post this picture on Facebook. (laughs) 
Let us know if this is a P code or not. We'll put a poll up. We actually did put a poll on our Facebook page. This may have been confusing to some listeners as I placed the poll on the page prior to the release of this episode, believing that this argument was included in part one. <laughs> we basically just put up a poll asking whether or not this coat is a pea coat or a wool coat. <laughs> yeah. And that was probably quite confusing because there was absolutely no context for that whatsoever, which I didn't know at the time, but now I do. I, <laughs> I quickly realized my error, but I chose not to delete the poll because I was winning. At last check, 89% of respondents agreed with me that Marie Robinson's coat is simply a wool coat and cannot, at least from what is visible in the photo, be assigned the specific designation of pea coat. I, I'm going to let you bask in the glory of this victory <laughs> because I know how to choose my battles. <laughs> you win this one, Kevin. It's a wool coat. <laughs> the poll is still up. If anyone would like to get online and cast their vote, you can find that on our Facebook page. <laughs> So when the trial for Michael Taylor's sexual deviance comes up, he pleads guilty to two counts of sexual assault. He does not receive any additional jail time, but he is forced to once again seek psychiatric treatment. As of 2005, when these sexual charges take place, Michael Taylor is still living in Osset, but after this legal trouble that he has, he managed to keep an even lower profile than he had the previous 30 years. So much so that his current whereabouts, I was unable to find. The news that surrounded this event essentially ended Sally Vincent's career as a teacher. She was let go from Highfield Grammar School shortly after all of this news broke. And as far as I've been able to tell, Sally Vincent never taught again. You might have thought that Peter Vincent, the exorcist in this story, would have lost his job as well over this. But while the church did seem to admit that exorcisms should probably be performed more sparingly than they were at the time, they did not deem Peter Vincent's actions as being inappropriate under the standards that were in place at that time for church exorcisms. The church actually defended Peter Vincent, but they did transfer him to another congregation, most certainly to get him away from Osset where all of this took place. Peter and Sally Vincent eventually ended up in a retirement home together in this really beautiful town, Chichester, in southeast England. Peter Vincent passed away in his sleep on March 18th, 2017. Sally Vincent may still be alive. She was alive in 2015 when they were living in this retirement home together, and I wasn't able to find an obituary for her, so she might very well still be alive. Or they might have run out of money, because that's how obituaries work. What? Obituaries are for rich people. People who can afford to put a an obituary in a newspaper. Well, everybody gets an obituary. It's like $12. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're not that expensive where I'm from. I mean, it's the same price as putting a, a an ad in the classifieds. There are a lot of people who don't have obituaries. If an obituary costs more than a classified ad, when I die, just put my obituary in the classifieds. You could just tell everybody, okay, look for this ad for a John Deere lawnmower. Again. And you could be like, John Deere lawnmower for sale, $300. It's a fantastic lawnmower. It always had a really good sense of humor. We hate to see it go. <laughs> it cut the grass so well. Oh, my God. What would my classified ad be? I'm going to put you on the spot here. What would mine be? For sale. <laughs> Blue jean jacket, 
got some holes in it. <laughs> Still looks nice, though. Cole, if interested. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of interesting side notes about the story. William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist, had a son in 1987, well after this incident that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He named this son of his Peter Vincent, the name of The Exorcist in this story that we just told. His son's full name was Peter Vincent Galahad Blatty. The son of his died in 2006. He was only 19 years old. He died of uh, myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart. Mm-hmm. Peter Vincent is also the name of the vampire hunter in 1985's Fright Night. Mm-hmm. I may have over-researched this story a little bit mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I got in touch with Tom Holland, who was the director of Fright Night, I got in touch with Tom Holland's son to ask him if the vampire hunter in Fright Night was named after Peter Vincent, the exorcist in the story that we just told. He was not. (laughs) The answer is no. (laughs) No, the Peter Vincent in Fright Night, uh, that name came from a combination of Vincent Price Mm -hmm. and Peter Cushing. Yeah, clearly. They were both horror icons. Peter Cushing was also in Star Wars. That totally makes sense, though. I mean, really, we're stretching. Peter and Vincent are well, I had really to know. common names for this time period. You had to know. <laughs> well, it's a vampire hunter. It's a priesty kind of guy. Religious. He carries crosses around with him. I thought maybe there was a connection, but there was not. I really just want for people to know it took a long damn time to get in, to get a hold of somebody that knew the answer to that question. I spent way too fucking long (laughs) trying to find out if the Peter Vincent from Fright Night was named after the Peter Vincent from our story. And I spent an enormous amount of time trying to figure this out, and there is absolutely no connection whatsoever. But you got your answer. I got my answer. You got your answer. It took way too long. Over the course of making this two-part episode, Jamie and I became concerned about our own susceptibility to demonic forces. (laughs) So in order to ease our own minds, we're about to take Bob Larson's absolutely 100% scientific and proven legitimate demon test. (laughs) Bob Larson is very clearly legitimate. His website has tons of photos of him posing in front of creepy backdrops, holding Bibles and crosses out in front of himself. The demon test that we're about to take only costs $9.95. I think we should probably encourage people to not give any money to Bob Larson. He's ridiculous. Yeah, we're just going to take one for the team here. Yeah, we're going to take one for the team. <laughs> we're going to pay the nine ninety five <laughs> for this. Okay, I think we should mention that when you purchase this test online, it was delivered immediately to the spam yes. filter of your email account. <laughs> yes, I purchased this. I purchased the demon test from Bob Larson's website. <laughs> and you were supposed to check your email to click on a link to actually take the demon test. And after searching for the email for a little while, we found out that it was redirected to my spam folder. <laughs> so. 21 okay. questions. These, uh, yeah, this is $10 <laughs> for these 21 demon, test questions. 21 demon test questions. Number one, do you sometimes exhibit uncontrollable outbursts of anger or violence? I don't do that. I, I don't either. Yeah, never. I think we're off to a bad start, though. I mean, Well, I mean, a good start if we are hoping to not be possessed by demons. Do you sometimes manifest behavior not consistent with your normal personality? Only when drinking. So currently. Yeah, I think we both <laughs> we, we both drink enough to, to answer yes on that one. 
Do you, oh, the next question. Do you abuse alcohol or drugs to escape painful past experiences in life? Does my work day count as a painful past experience? Uh, yeah. Well, sure then. Do you commit immoral or illegal acts contrary to your customary values? Um, we live in Alabama. There's a lot of stuff that's illegal here that isn't other places. Yeah, we're going yes on that one. Do you know of ancestors who committed murder, suicide, or sexual? Yes, my whole, we got all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Do voices tell you to commit illegal acts, blaspheme God, or indulge in immoral acts? My own voice tells me that. Mm, you tell me that sometimes. Okay, so that's... Currently, okay. Yeah, we'll go yes on that one. Do you live a fear-based life resulting in paranoia or multiple phobias? I'm afraid of fish. Mm, fish, really? Yeah. Like eating fish? No, like being around them. Live fish, if they brush up against my legs. Ugh. They're like little flattened out snakes. <laughs> Have you failed repeatedly in significant relationships? Yeah, you can check that one yeah. for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to check that one twice. <laughs> okay. Do you consistently experience serious health or financial issues? Well, I work for a nonprofit, so yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I've got the health issues, brain tumors, broken ribs, <laughs> all of that. So You're a mess. Yeah, we're good on that one. All right, that's the end of the demon test. There really <laughs> seems like there should have been more... It feels like an intake form at a student health center. I feel like there should have been more things about... Voices. Speaking in languages that you don't know. Right. Oh, we got a 31. We are at a... Oh, my God. Oh, no, we're at high risk. <laughs> we are at a high risk for demon oppression or possession. <laughs> Bob Larson would now, based on our demon test score of 31, like to sell us four items. Oh, Oh, wait, no, there's more. Oh, my God. Oh, God. That's based on our answers for each question. <laughs> well, shit, why don't we just pay the $500 and get the full access? Well, okay, so how do you feel now that you know that we are at a high risk of demon possession? Well, I'm wondering what the potential outcomes. <coughs> shit. That's demon. <laughs> well, all right, this was anticlimactic. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we'd get a lot more mileage out of Bob Larson's <laughs> <laughs> demon test. This is only nine ninety five. Finally, we saved the best nugget of this episode for the very end. When I came across the blog of our new friend from the UK, Phil, I started looking him up online. And while doing so, I came across a very interesting photo of him on his Facebook page. When I found your Facebook page, I wasn't going to bring this up until after we had finished talking about everything. Uh, I saw a very interesting picture of you. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> you, I bet you know the one I'm talking about. Not the one in the underpants. Yep. That's the one I'm talking <laughs> about. <laughs> <laughs> that was Valentine's Day. And that, oh, and that was a couple of years ago now. Me and Kathy stayed a night in a hotel for Valentine's Day. It was a treat to me. A slap-up meal and then a night in the hotel. And she, she bought me these ridiculous <laughs> underpants. So I, was, I dared, I said, don't take my photograph in these. She said, don't dare me. So <laughs> it's quite respectable, though. I'm not showing anything. <laughs> not much, anyway. That was that was funny because when I came across your blog and decided I was going to find you and, you know, and then I found the Facebook page and, you know, I sent you an email. And I went to Jamie and I was like, 
I found this great guy that we've got to talk to. Let me show you his picture. <laughs> <laughs> and I showed her that picture. Well, listen, at 59 year old, I, I can still be, I can still be daft. Yep. <laughs> I, there's no way you'd let me put that on the website, is there? <laughs> it's up to you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put anything on Facebook. I didn't want anybody to see. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think Phil looks great. Phil rocks those underwear yeah, better than no. I would. Better than you would. Hell yeah. <laughs> Do you remember when I showed you that photo? Yes. I was so excited. I know you were. <laughs> it's a great picture. It is a great picture. Like, I, I wanted you to get in touch with Phil just based on that picture alone. I wanted to get in touch with Phil based on that picture alone. <laughs> if you'd like to check out Phil and his knickers, you can find that photo in this episode's article on whereistheline.net. You may want to hurry, though, because I've become rather fond of Phil. And if he asks me to take that photo down, I will absolutely do so with expedience. <laughs> That's going to do it for episode six of Where is the Line. If you enjoy the episode, maybe give us a review on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also, check out our website at whereistheline.net. We'll have an article to go along with this episode along with a few relevant photos, including one of Phil <laughs> in his knickers. <laughs> you can also check us out on Facebook. We have a Twitter, but we don't check it, so fuck that. We have a Twitter. <laughs> uh, yeah. We have a Twitter. It's linked, it's linked to our podcast hosting, so the only things on it are these little automated messages that say, check out our latest episode, and then has a link to it. And I don't type any of that. It's just automated. We've now been listened to in every state in the union except Hawaii, Idaho, and South Dakota. If you know somebody from South Dakota. Yeah, somebody in Pierre, please. <laughs> send them a link. <laughs> or just drive across that border and listen to Where is the Line <laughs> in South Dakota. You could be the first person to do that. Hawaii makes sense. I mean, if I lived in Hawaii, I absolutely would not be sitting inside listening to a podcast. You know, with the new technology we have today, you can listen to podcasts on your phone. Take it with you. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye, y'all. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look on.